Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. And we are, once again, proud to be sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through st- strategic. Strategy is such a tough word. It's tough to have strategy as well, but I digress. Uh, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman. See more at BeckermanPR.com. And once again, a big week for politics and the political scene out there. There was the APAC conference down in D.C., and we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show and implications, a lot of foreign policy issues going on. And foreign policy, as we know, we don't pay enough attention to it, I think, personally, here in the U.S. It's not always at the top of the agenda. We have focused a lot more on domestic-type policy, and that seems to be where the politics is moving out there, particularly on the national level. But every once in a while, it rears its head in the form of Ukraine and the struggle over Ukraine. And there's been a lot going on. Even without Ukraine, a lot of meddling that Russia has been doing, even without Ukraine. Let's talk about Syria. Let's talk about North Korea. Let's talk about all kinds of conflicts going on, low-simmering conflicts, maybe medium-simmering conflicts. But now we have a very simmering conflict going on in Europe. And additionally, going on right now, meaning Thursday, Friday, is CPAC. That is the Conservative Political Action Conference held annually in Washington, D.C. And that is the kind of red meat for the red people, red state type of conference where all the speakers get up and say government is bad, taxes are bad, everything is bad, Obama's bad. And uh, that's kind of the speech that I saw Ted Cruz give this morning. But uh, we'll leave that for a different time. I don't like to attack Cruz, Ted Cruz every week. Um, it's not it's not becoming, but CPAC going on, APAC going on, and there's a lot going on in the political realm. So we're going to, this week, take a little, you know, we're going to keep it local. We're going to also go national, go a little far, and we got some great guests coming up. We have coming up Rockland County Executive, newly elected Ed Day, who is a Republican who won in Rockland County. And later on in the show, we have Lee Smith of the Weekly Standard who also writes for Tablet Magazine and writes about all kinds of foreign policy issues and uh, is a leading neocon writer and thinker. So this is going to be a great show, folks. And I want to welcome to Spin Class, Rockland County Executive Ed Day, born originally in Brooklyn, graduated from Brooklyn Tech, and was a former chief of detectives at the Baltimore Police Department, county legislator in Rockland County, and is now the county executive, a Republican. Ed Day, welcome to here to Spin Class. It's great to be here, Michael. Hope everything's well. So tell us uh, how it is, the transition now to county executive from county legislator. Uh, you had a you had a uh, not uh, inconsequential win uh, here in New York State. Uh, as uh, New York County, we're sorry, Republican county executive swept the uh, the New York City suburbs. Yeah, it was it was uh, interesting. You know, the, the transition piece is interesting because I, I look at the transition more of taking the skills I developed as being involved in in, in uh, positions of authority and organizations over my over my life, and then applying the experience I had as a legislator part time in the county to some of the issues that I, I'm obviously painfully aware of. So that that really is a true transition, and I'm very heartened by the vote. I mean the. Uh, Nobody expected me to win, uh, only because as a Republican in a Democratic county, with all the third party lines supporting somebody else, mathematically the uh, pundits said there was no chance, but they weren't relying on the fact that people, uh, heard, heard our message, which is very clear and straightforward, understood that, um, I had something very different to offer, and, um, we won, as you said, by a substantive margin, 52 to 46. Yes, and, and that was a surprise to many people. I think uh, your opponent, David Freed, certainly had the backing of Bill Clinton, a former yep. Clinton staffer. Uh, he had the backing of the governor, and yep. uh, he won a hard-fought Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that you know the campaign you ran was uh, 
how would you characterize it? The campaign that you ran versus the type of campaign that he ran. The, 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 I would. Ca- I'm not going to characterize my opponents, but I will tell you the campaign we ran um, was uh, was handled magnificently. Uh, my son Christe uh, was the campaign manager. Uh, he set forth a plan of action that we were able to abide by. Our message was the same uh, on November 4th as it was in January. And our media team, Casal Media, was able to essentially take the Ed Day people knew locally and get that whole image and that that concept of Ed Day out to the entirety of Rockland County with some effect. And that's really the difference. I, I think people heard what we had to say. The turnout, uh, instead of being what was projected about 60,000 voters, turned out to be nearly 75,000 voters. So people were engaged. They were interested in part, I believe, because we... We brought that message out to people that this is a critical election to be involved in. And um, I, I think that's really was the tail of the tape when you look at it. So your background is in law enforcement primarily. Predominantly, yes. Okay, but you're coming into a situation where the challenges are probably more fiscal, right? Yes. Rockland County has a very significant budget deficit, uh, probably the largest in the state uh, from mm-hmm. what I understand. So it's a challenge. You're coming in here. You had a longtime county executive before you and Scott Vanderhoff, who was there. He was a Republican as well. Uh, but the, the county hadn't had a lot of change. You're coming in. You're inheriting, I, I don't want to say a mess, but potentially that uh, it's, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a, a package he left for you. No, the, we didn't have a mess. There's no question about it. I mean, we have a, an unordered deficit going uh, as of the end of 13 of approximately $145 million. That is 20% of the entirety of our budget. We nearly defaulted in January. Uh, we were $42,000 away from defaulting in January. So to, for anybody to characterize things as, quote, improving at the time is, is fantasy. We have some serious issues, but you know something? That's passed. We look forward. And as far as the challenges, from my perspective, the challenges uh, are in front of us that could be addressed organizationally, things such as overtime, contracts, um, looking at uh, expectations from your managers and commissioners. These are all organizational things that could be accomplished. And the way you accomplish things good, uh, or you get things done, get things done well, uh, when you have a skill in the area of any common sense, is you bring people on. We have our new county auditor is Bob Bergman. He was the county finance commissioner uh, going back a number of years when this county was in good shape. So Bob's learning curve is zero. Uh, he was able to hit the ground running immediately. And that was the first first thing that helped us very uh, very quickly. We also, you know, looked to identify and ask for resignations of every commissioner and department had 25 in total um, upon my coming into office. And we got 25 responses. Some folks are gone. Some folks are staying. But every person who was part of this administration, it is expected that they show us what they got for the betterment of people of Rockland and the betterment of her organization. I use organization instead of government for a reason. I want that mindset to change. I think one of the successes we saw was transportation, where Commissioner Vanderbeek took took some issues forward where he improved the transportation uh, collection system to a point that we now cannot pinpoint use. Um, so Tom did a wonderful job there. You look at um, our finance commissioner, um, Steve DeGroat. He marshaled our efforts to get our $96 million deficit bond sold, and it shocked everybody. You know, by taking the time we spent with the radio agencies, showing them what we were doing uh, in Rockland County, even though they couldn't change our rating, they could see that operationally we were a whole different ball game. And you take that with some of the skills Steve brought to the table. We ended up getting a uh, getting a, uh, a rate of 2.7 percent, which was a good, at least a full point, better than expectations. And coming up with 11 million dollars of cash on top of it that we could apply to deficit reduction. So these are early successes, simply made from the fact that people are seeing what we're doing in a completely different model. So you mentioned that your opponents had the all the minor lines, I guess, yes. or the non-major party lines, but you also won. It, what's interesting politically about this race is that as a Republican, you got fewer votes than your opponent did on the Democratic line. But there was right. a there was another ticket that you ran on called Preserve Rockland. Yes, and you got almost ten thousand votes Correct. on that line. Tell yep. us a little bit about that uh, for the listenership who probably may not know what Preserve Rockland is. Okay, and yep. and why you ran on that line and right. you know, how that came about. Yeah, getting getting fewer votes as a Republican line than a Democrat in a county that's two one Democrat is not unusual. We're about four thousand votes, I think, 
uh, shy in that area. Uh, the Preserve Brooklyn line was created by civic associations. We had the Clarkstown Preservation Society, the uh, Preserve Ramapo, and a number of civic associations in a variety of towns all helped us create this line because the reality is, practically speaking, as a Republican, to win on one line is just not viable. Um, I was not going to engage this year when I saw what occurred where um, uh, Elon Schoenberger was given the um, had, was, had secured the Independence Party and Worker Family Party line. And when he lost the election, uh, the primary election, uh, obviously the, the party starts like trying to find somebody else. And how that came about was because there's a quirk in election law. If you, you get nominated for a judgeship, you are allowed to formally extract yourself from the nomination. It's the only way you can do it, by the way, other than dying and being locked up for a felony. Um, and then they could, it gives them a chance to, to put somebody else in your spot. I was not going to engage in that. When I heard that, especially when I heard that the race was going to be for a judgeship in Brooklyn somewhere, uh, where Elon, and again, look, this is not an indictment of Elon, be very, very clear about that. Uh, this is just part of the political system, and I don't agree with it. Uh, Elon made it very clear. He says, I have no intention of running for this position. Um, I really couldn't care less about it. I'm going to take it so I, I can basically get my team to re- realign and, and get support for David. I was not going to be part of that. And I said very simply at a fundraiser when I decided publicly to state that, was that look at the average person in in New York City who's going to vote for someone by party. To have a person go in who believes enough to vote, uh, you know, a, a something that's been secured by the blood uh, of patriots over the years, and that was a sham vote. I did not want to be part of that. So I extracted and removed myself from any consideration immediately, and I called upon my opponent to do the same thing. I felt, I felt it was insulting. So um, we created an independent line, which was not politically based in that, there was no political party attached to it. It was merely created for that election. I'm sure it will be created for more uh, as we go forward. And people, I guess, saw the, uh, you know, people who wanted to vote for me but didn't want to vote as a Republican or people who wanted to vote someplace outside the accept- accepted norm within the political system. They went to this independent line, Line G, Preserve Rockland. And like I said, we guarded uh, nearly 10,000 votes in that line. Well, it's always tough to get people to look all the way over on the ballot for Line G, as you said. Yep, it, it's absolutely. hard enough to get some people to be able to find where the conservative party, and that might be Line C. So it, it's, yep. it can be very difficult for people to do that. How did you, what was it about Preserve Rockland? And uh, I'll ask a follow-up question right after that, yep. or I'll, th- I'll throw it in right now, because there's another group called Preserve Ramapo. Right. Uh, that's also, are they, are they one and the same? Is there something about Preserve Rockland that was a particularly distinctive for a lot of people, that they were looking, really, instead of voting Democrat, voting Republican, they wanted to say, I'm more in favor of Preserve Rockland? Yeah, Preserve, just to make it clear, Preserve Ramapo was one of the groups that helped us put this line together. So that's their involvement in Ramapo was supportive of the countywide approach, which is something that we had we had thought was a good strategy back in January of 2013. Uh, how do we get people to vote in that line? That's the challenge of an election. Um, you know, how do you get people to vote on any other line and to find the line? Uh, when you look at the engagement of the populace, the citizens, where the norm of I believe David's campaign modeled about 54, 55,000 voters coming out. We modeled 60,000. For having nearly 75,000 people come out, the, the electorate was fully engaged. And when you're fully engaged in an election, you tend to be looking where you have to look. And I think that was part of it. I mean, it was a challenge. I'm not minimizing that. But I'm very proud of the fact that we had a message so strong that we, A, pretty much broke every local election turnout record, and, B, came up with a number of votes on an independent line G that surpassed by three times the amount of votes on the two on the three other um, independent the three other independent party uh, the the third party lines. The I think the third party lines garnered about thirty four hundred votes total, and Preserve Rockland again had nearly ten thousand. So that's a significant number. Absolutely, very impressive. And we're talking yeah. with Ed Day here, the newly elected, actually not newly elected anymore, really uh, newly installed county executive. In Rockland County, uh, in the lower Hudson Valley, here on Spin Class, sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations. And, Ed, just to follow up on the Preserve Ramapo uh, 
question. The Rockland mm-hmm. County, as as you know, as you know, as particularly with regard to this show, we're going to ask questions with regard to the Jewish community. Rockland County right. is, I think, possibly have read the most Jewish by percentage in the entire country. Uh, it's about thirty percent. One out of every three uh, residents of Rockland County is Jewish. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a very, you know, incredibly high percentage, and it's also an incredibly diverse Jewish community. You have yeah. really all all types of Jews uh, that really run the spectrum of from you know totally secular and unaffiliated to the most religious uh, Jewish groups around and identifiably Jewish. And Absolutely. there's there's conflict between those groups within, without, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of people in the Jewish community perceive preserve Ramapo as being uh, being created to be anti the orthodox community specifically right. so just if you could address that for a second uh, for the audience and give them an idea of you know where you know where you stand if there are a lot of people who are who might be uneasy with you having the backing of that type of group well you know I, you know i watched i watched a lot of this you know break out before i even considered running for county executive i mean the the, the language you would hear you would see the allegations going back and forth um, you know, about, you know, who Preserve Ramapo was and what the positions were. You know, you, you, there were differences of opinion, clearly, and I think what happened is people of different uh, positions, you know, made this sometimes larger than life and not in an accurate way. Um, I, I mean, I looked at, if I believed Preserve Ramapo to be a hate group, I never would have even involved myself with it. So I, I really reject that. Preserve Ramapo, for the most part, from what I've seen, are concerned with land use, they're concerned with you know, a balanced treatment for people in, in their community. Uh, they're very concerned about development, and these are legitimate issues. Uh, do we have hotheads out there, um, you know, who make comments that are really pretty stupid? Absolutely. Uh, do you tie them to a leadership of any particular group? No, I, and, I, and I would point very simply to this. Um, I ran against an opponent, David Freed. I had the support of Preserve Ralpo. Um, I, uh, you know, had uh, people who supported me and didn't support me, and within that group, if you looked at the, if you within that group of people, uh, you know, some of the stupidest things that came out of people's mouths and that some of the hateful things that were said were not made by the by the formal groups. They were not made by David Free. They were not made by Ed Day. They were not made by Preserve Ramapo or anybody who was formally attached to either campaign. There were people on the outside who created, unfortunately, a, a really a cauldron. And it was it was unnecessary. I mean, I, I there were mailings that went out that accused my wife of being anti-Semitic, uh, making statements about David Free being a Jew from Ramapo. These were mailings. Um, there were things online that were hateful uh, that were, that went out. And you know, I'm very blessed. I, I, I obviously the Jewish community that is there is part of my community. I I've been involved in this community for many many years. Um, I had folks in the Jewish community who recoiled at some of the stuff they saw, and actually Steve Gold who was probably one of the most recognized names in the Jewish community, he was so incensed by this, he actually sent a message out uh, calling his people out to saying some of the things they were saying, which I'm not going to repeat now. But when you go after uh, a candidate's wife with lies through mailings, when you go after a candidate's grandson, uh, after his son who served this country, uh, it, and then it's just not really, you know, the best thing to see. And, and conversely, there are people who probably supported me, who got out of control also. Again, these are the tangent, the outer edges of a campaign that David would not have control over, I would not have control over, but it's stressing nonetheless. I think the important issue here is that on the night I won, David and I both acknowledged this in our, in our speeches, both concession and victory, and we made it very clear that this is unacceptable. We cannot, you know, Abe Lincoln was very clear, our 16th president, if a house divided cannot stand. Uh, and we're engaging in an active outreach to every community in this county, because we understand in order for this county to survive, in order this county to uh, to um, do well, we have to work together. And these are the areas of commonality we're going to find. Well, I think it's very well said. We're talking to Ed Day, the county executive of Rockland County, New York, here on Spin Class, and really getting a, a perspective on you know some of the rhetoric that's been going on. And we actually talked about it on this show last week. Uh, and we talked about the conflict going on in Pine Bush a little further up the right. little further up the highway, mm-hmm. but uh, not necessarily all that divorced from a lot of the development issues uh, in Sullivan, Orange, and Rockland counties. Right. And a lot of the conflict with going on where a lot, un- unfortunately or fortunately, it doesn't it's hard to say, just really objectively, 
uh, Orthodox Jews, particularly the Hasidic community, is really at the center of it. And I think one thing, you know, I wanted to get your sense of it is is the sense of, of balance. You know, people move to the suburbs and, you know, I grew up in the suburbs. I live in the suburbs mm-hmm. and people move to the suburbs because they want space and they want, you know, they want to live, they want to live their piece of grass and they, you know, they're looking. And a lot of times the center of the suburbs is the public schools. You did say a piece of grass, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, a little more. They want they want a lawn. They want you know, they want a yard. They want you know they want the the two car garage, right. th- that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they're looking for some space. There's also the the kind of suburban with regard to the public schools and the sports teams and the like. And I guess one of the challenges we've had this in my neighborhood in Nassau County is integrating the Orthodox community into that type of lifestyle where a lot of people of the orthodox community well they don't send the kids to the public schools for religious reasons they're not mm-hmm. participating in some of those civic activities uh, that kind of glues suburban communities together and at the same time they are not always as interested in having that large lawn they're a little bit more concerned with living how far they live from their synagogue right so there's that there's that tension between why certain people might move to the suburbs and why people from the orthodox community might move to the suburbs and i'm wondering you know, you know, from a from just a policy perspective, how we balance those two interests. Well, you know, from from my perspective as one who is at the county level of government, I'm I'm not going to be directly involved in zoning issues, but I, I could speak to a couple of these issues. Number one, if the most important thing for everybody, regardless of where they're from, to see is a leader who is balanced in his approach. Uh, there was a very unfortunate incident during the campaign where a couple of knuckleheads, and I can't describe any better than that, went into the uh, Kaiser area, which is a, is, is a Hasidic community. Uh, and decide to take a, a paintball gun out and shoot shoot a fellow twice. Now, as an ex-police commander or police officer, that moment in time must have scared the living daylights out of this gentleman uh, because he probably didn't realize what kind of gun it was. Uh, but it, it was just something that needed to be called out, and I did, as did my opponents. That is that is the first thing you have to people have to understand about you is that you are not lo- you are not taking sides. You're looking to build consensus. As it relates to the issues you spoke about, I, I can share this with you. Um, we are a county as we are a country of laws. There are zoning laws. There are, there are uh, rules that are laid out in order for development to protect the county that is here. When I moved here in 1983, uh, I bought a Cape Cod Cape, Cape in New City, which was our starter home, which was still there at, <laughs> by the way. And now we would love to have friends here. My, my wife's family was in the Bronx. My family was in Brooklyn. Uh, we didn't walk in and expect to put a six-floor home in the backyard to accommodate our friends being here. Um, if we're going to do anything, we had to comply with what the zoning was, and if we felt the zoning was inappropriate, there's a process in which to deal with that. I think most people understand if the process is dealt with fairly uh, and in an open way, they don't object to it. It's when there are developments that are put up, when there's housing put in, that is uh, in direct violation of law, and then the municipality doesn't enforce the law, that's where the frustration comes in. Unfortunately, that's where the hatred comes in. And if, if government treats everybody in a fair and balanced way, and that doesn't mean equal, fair and balanced, recognizing the needs of every community, but when you, sh- when you shine it under a light, the average person can look and say, you know something, that's a sensible approach. You're not going to have as many problems. When there are shortcuts made, where there are favors done, for whatever reason they may be done, that's when people resent it, and that's when, and that's when things start, people start getting angry. And then, of course, there's always that one issue. The less you know about your neighbor, the more in, inclined you are to hate what that person's about, because knowledge of a person and their style and their background and their practices, that knowledge tends to minimize ignorant hatred, which is unfortunate we see all too often in, uh, in this country at times. So as county executive, I think one of your mandates from what you're saying is to bring people together. How, how, do, how do the communities in central Ramapo or Ramapo kind of learn to coexist with each other? And is it really, is it dialogue? Uh, how do we solve like, the big issue like, with regard to the schools in East Ramapo? 
there's a lot of there's a lot of simmering issues. Uh, I know you you're speaking specifically with regard to building regulations, and I couldn't agree more mm-hmm. that that you know applying one standard to everybody as far as the law is concerned is really the best way to to ease conflicts. I think when right. people feel that there's special favors going on, that creates conflicts. Yeah. But there there are some intractable issues right now. I mean, I don't think you have. Uh, you have a situation in East Ramapo where you mm-hmm. have a, the vast majority of, of children are attending private schools. Right. The public schools are primarily are, are many, not primarily, but I'm saying many of the people are immigrants uh, and they're struggling. I think that that's that's a uh, a fair way to to say it. And there's conflict, and there's conflict that's spilled out into the pages of the media all over the place. Yeah, I know. And it, 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 you're it, not it, responsible, it, yeah. but you know how do how do we deal with that? Well, first of all, I think there has to be one. Uh, unassailable fact that a public school system has to be well-funded and survive. And that's number one. You cannot have a public school system that does not do right by the kids who are attending it. It's just That's just a reality. So, you know, look, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a Roman Catholic. Uh, my parents sent uh, me to Catholic elementary school at a young age. I went to public high school. Uh, my sisters uh, both either went to high school. They all went to elementary school privately, and one went to Catholic school, one did not. Uh, my parents pay for that. Uh, that was their choice. Uh, that was they, that was what they believed they wanted to do. They never spoke about sure change in the public school system because they wanted they had to spend extra money to send our my my siblings and me to a Catholic school. The public school system is foundation. Uh, if our children are educated, uh, we fail them, and their they their future is not going to be acceptable. And it's not coming from somebody in politics. It's coming from somebody who's been involved in PTA. I'm a PTA Life Award winner. I, I've been coaching children for years. That is the one inalterable fact that we have to accept. Now, from there, that's where the rest of the conversation should start. It's when there's a perception or a reality that children in the public schools are being shortchanged because of a resentment that there's so many kids in the public schools and many of the children are going to private schools. That's when the problems start. Uh, and that's what has to be addressed. And we, there are a lot of things that are up on, on, the, on the table right now at the state level to adjust the formulas uh, so it, we can reflect the dynamics of the of the particular district, and I'm hopeful that's successful. Uh, the other piece is, is that I have conversed with a number of the folks who are on, on both sides of this issue. Um, as a matter of fact, Joel Klein, the superintendent of schools, and I go back to the Clarkstown schools. We just, Rachel, uh, today, we want to have a follow-up conversation. We've actually worked together on a couple things in, in the past. So, I mean, the, the engagement is important, uh, but, again, there has to be one uh, unalterable fact is that any public school system has to be funded to a level that gives our kids a chance to learn uh, and be successful with their lives. From there, from that point on, comes the rest of the conversation. If people are not willing to accept that fact, um, which the reality is if the school system is not funded, your property values drop, uh, there's a problem. And that's that's how I look at it right now. Understandably, I spoke to or uh, Senator Carlucci a little while ago with regard to mm-hmm. his push, as you alluded to, for greater state aid for East Ramapo. Yes. And it's explained to me, and I, I think it's I think it, it it's true, is that state aid to school districts does not count uh, private school students. So in a district like East Ramapo, they're mm-hmm. only getting, uh, I think, they're 30% of the state aid that they might be able to Correct. get if yep. they counted all the students. And... Uh, to me, that, that I mean, that's that's big money. That's not well, you know, that, that's it, not it, insignificant. That's one of the strategies I mentioned earlier. You know, these are the type of things that we have people who are taught, with elected officials speaking to. They have to be advocated for and pushed through in within the within the domain that these elected officials are in. Senator Carlucci, state senator, uh, part of part of a conference that has a lot of sway. The independent caucus has a lot of sway in the Senate. So I look forward to seeing what he can tangibly do. To address an unfair situation for funding, which any everybody understands. I mean, to have East Rampos being listed as one of the rich school districts is absurd. So I have a lot of faith in the senator to, to get that done. Uh, he has able partners, and I know in Ellen Jaffe and Ken Zabrowski uh, in the assembly. Uh, we cannot talk any longer about this. I mean, this, this has to be addressed. Um, the issues that are, are, are in East Rampos now, it's a cauldron now. This is why I did support the initiative that's been put forth about giving the State Board of Education an ability, and I'm emphasizing, an ability to intercede as appropriate when the the pitch gets so high that people aren't hearing each other. The first part of that legislation would afford the opportunity for the state 
Board of Education to act, act as an intermediary. And that may be, I believe that's necessary. I believe the shouting has gotten so loud in East Ramapo between the board and a number of the parents that they need intervention, at least in that regard, uh, for a start. And, you know, things such as the law firm that's been there, when you come out and you say this law firm, which was hired in one day, uh, Minerva and D'Agostino, you have incidents where are just absolutely beyond belief for uh, attorneys to be involved in. And then you pledge that this term, this firm will be discharged forthwith. And six months later, seven months later, eight months later, they're still there. That does not help your case in the court of public opinion. So, you know, these are some of the things that are just adding fuel to a fire and that has to be put out very quickly. And I think what the county executive is referring to is video that showed one of the attorneys for that law firm uh, racially disparaging a local resident in a, in a pretty grotesque manner. So yeah. I think I think one thing uh, you know probably know well at this point uh, being in politics is nowadays uh, you're you know you're fair game anywhere you are. So uh, oh yeah, you know, and be, and, and be and careful what you say with that open mic, and be careful what you say with that open video yeah. camera. Well, that was just that. That was beyond. That was just out of control. I mean, the the the, uh, the attorney Chris Kirby uh, first at first went after a woman who was actually complimenting some of the people in, in the school system, who was one of the critics. There's no question about it. Peggy Hatton, uh, and then it was laying in wait outside and reengaged these people again. And here's the thing that that is a distinction that I see as someone who's had command and who's had responsible positions in organizations. The fact that Chris Kirby was able to engage in that diatribe in front of the full board, and not one board member said, Mr. Kirby, you're out of order, sit down. Those simple words would have been a tremendous thing to hear, and nothing was said until the re-engagement happened outside, where I believe the board vice president happened to go outside, probably knew something was going on, and did try to get this guy to calm down. But people see this, and they see, you know, outrageous behavior in front of the employer, and the employer saying nothing. That is why this is a critical piece, in my view. This is a distinction, but it's not lost upon a lot of people. Yeah, I have no question. I think uh, that type of behavior is out of bounds. Probably what you're talking about earlier with people in the campaign who get carried away yep. with regard to their uh, uh, with regard to their emotions and passions, and with regard to politics, and you know, that can happen. So, uh, as we wind down this segment, I want to just tr- kind of quickly pivot to some political questions for you. Mm-hmm. And yesterday, uh, Rob Astorino, your across-the-river county executive uh, partner uh, in Westchester County, announced that he was going to take on the, I'd say right now, unenviable task of running against Andrew Cuomo uh, right. for governor. Uh, so a fellow Republican county executive, I think uh, possibly looking at the suburban winds of you and him and Ed Mangano in Nassau County and saying, you know, maybe a Republican, this could be a Republican year coming up. So what's your feeling with regard to another suburban county executive uh, trying to go for the big chair up in Albany? Uh, my, my, you know, all the politics aside, I mean, my feeling very simply is Rob has been a, a very good partner. Uh, he welcomed me over there as soon as I won. We've talked about a number of things that we believe we can do in partnership with each other. And, you know, uh, I wish him well. Uh, Eliza would wish anybody well, uh, in, in his endeavor. But he's, he's been a good partner with me and I, and I value his friendship at this point and I wish him well. Excellent. And I also, uh, certainly have to mention the fact that your son has announced that he is going to be taking on longtime Congresswoman Nita Lowy. Yes. Also a Rockland versus Westchester type of, uh, uh, you know, a, a Rockland versus well, Westchester, <laughs> uh, 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 battle. So, uh, any, any, uh, any comments or thoughts on that particular yeah, race? Very, very simply, I think, I think, uh, you know, Chris spoke to me, uh, about running. Um, he looks at this as an extension of his service to his country where he served in two wars and left as a captain in the U.S. Army. Um, and I, look, I obviously have a father's pride. But what I will point out very simply is that Chris's, Chris's motivation is service. Uh, he is a vice president of his, his equity firm at 29 years of age. He is uh, a family man. He's a single dad. He's getting married in October. Uh, he's very well-spoken. He's very passionate about his beliefs. And, um, you know, he has two Ivy League degrees, by the way. So when he asked me about this, I said, he said, what do I think? I said, I think you're probably more qualified than pretty much every elected official, including the guy you're looking at, to be running for office. He, he represents the young people. Uh, the young people with a passion and a sense of service. And again, I, I know Nita Lowy. 
Uh, we've always gotten along very well. We will work together uh, well going forward as we progress through the year. I have no doubt about that. But, um, you know, I, I, would, I would encourage people to look at Chris not simply as my son, but measure him as the man he is and the accomplishments he's had in his 29 years of life, and then think about what he can do going forward. And, and I would just say, look at his website, Chris Day for Congress, and make your own judgments. Actually, you're, I think you're correct. I did not do him justice and give you, you know, the audience a quick background. Chris Day is a graduate of Clarkstown Public Schools, Yale University, and my alma mater, Columbia Business School. And he also served for four years in the U.S. Army as an Airborne Ranger Infantry Officer. And leaving as a captain in the U.S. Army, not an insignificant rank, and completed nope. his MBA at the same time. So uh, kudos to you on raising children who are inspired with uh, public service and that spirit of public service. Yeah, uh, I would just offer my, my son Michael will be getting his Green Beret at the end of this month uh, with the U.S. Army Special Forces for three and a half years of training. And I would offer this. Both Michael and Chris were at Clarkstown North High School when this country was attacked. Uh, they, like a number of other people their age, saw what occurred to their community in their country and decided to not just talk about it, but to actually do something about it. And, they, and they, uh, I, 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 there are so many young people I've coached over the years who've actually joined the military and, and, and did what they thought was right uh, for this country uh, that they feel, they feel that these are being threatened. So I, I applaud all these young people for the service. These are the true, when you talk about the 1%, uh, the true 1% in my heart, in my mind, are the ones who have stepped up and served this country as they have, and I'm very proud of all of them. My sons included, obviously. Well, a- absolutely, there's no question about it. And we, you know, I certainly salute, and we salute, you know, as as community. There's no question. Everybody who dons the uniform, uh, whether it's in in the army, whether it's people who are serve as volunteer firemen, uh, who are out there serving their community, volunteer EMS workers. Uh, there is uh, there's so much in the way of public service, and you know that's actually really as as a close off. That's a really important piece of, of Rockland County as well. Uh, you oh, see oh, so much of it, fire, oh, volunteer firemen and 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 EMS. Um, yep. you know, so much of your county is made up of people who are giving of their time. Uh, particularly, you know, Rockland County, and I, I and I'm gonna actually close with this point is that my my father uh, grew up in Rockland, went to Spring Valley High School. I mentioned mm-hmm. this before in the, on the show. My, my grandparents had a store in Spring Valley right on Main Street. And, uh, so, and I know a little bit about Rockland County was back in the days even, and I've been told even the days before the Tappan Zee Bridge existed. So, uh, it's a, it's, at its heart, many ways, a rural county. Um, well, the volunteers me to talk about, it. I mean, that's, you, you just, you just pinpoint the reason why my inauguration took place in the Rockland County Fire and Emergency Services Center. Because I wanted to really acknowledge uh, my roots as a first responder, and also acknowledge the efforts of these volunteers, these heroic volunteers that do so much for us. Yeah, really amazing. Well, Rockin County Executive Ed Day, I really want to thank you for joining us here. Thanks for your time and giving uh, the audience a real sense of who you are and what your plans are, and you know the way you're going to govern uh, Rockin right. County. And good luck to you. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. And anybody needs to get a hold of us, RocklandCounty.gov, brand new website, and number at the office six three eight five one two two. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Have a great day. You too. And as we do here on Spin Class, going to pivot from the local to the national or the international. And I want to welcome for the first time here on Spin Class, Lee Smith, senior editor at the Weekly Standard, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and also a contributor to Tablet Magazine, where he writes extensively on the Middle East and other foreign policy issues. Lee, welcome to Spin Class. Nice to be here. Thank you very kindly, Michael. So, Lee, uh, big week going on in the political world, or I should say the foreign policy world. Maybe uh, Americans right now are starting to pay attention to the world around them instead of focusing for so long on domestic priorities. Uh, would you say that Russia, Ukraine, and the like, not just the Olympics, has kind of yeah. uh, forced Americans to think a little bit that the, yeah, about I'm, their surroundings? I'm not sure how much uh, Americans were paying attention to the Winter Olympics. Um, but yes, I think that uh, I think that um, the situation in Ukraine has different people, has a number of people concerned about uh, America's place in the world and the relative strength of um, the relative stre- the relative strength of America, and the, particular, in particular the Obama White House right now, and how that figures in the world. I think a number of people are quite concerned, Republicans as well as Democrats. So. 
give us a sense of you know you have a big week uh, going on with APAC and CPAC at the bookends of the week right now uh, in Washington. Both have their own uh, charms with regard to the political world. And uh, what would you what would you say right now is the there were there were some there were some I guess foreign policy. Uh, there's certainly a lot of foreign policy posturing with regard to APAC. Uh, BB came to town. Obama said some things, mm-hmm. and uh, also, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think there was any posturing. I mean, I think the positions are pretty clear. Um, and I'm writing about it for the Weekly Standard this week that there's a big divide between the White House's position and the Netanyahu's government position on uh, what should be happening in the region. I mean, I think the president has been. President Obama has been very clear about the way he wants to see the Middle East going, and this is um, entirely, uh, entirely opposite to how America's traditional regional allies see it, including Israel, uh, as well as the Gulf Arabs. I think there's a, I think there's a yawning divide right now between how Jerusalem sees it and how um, the Obama administration sees it. So yeah, I don't think there's any posturing. I think the differences are. I think the differences are real, and I think the differences are, are are problematic. Okay, so a number of points there I want to follow up with. Uh, number one is the perception, or I guess the framing of the Iran issue as being a purely Israel issue, when I think, as you really alluded to just a second ago, Saudi Arabia and the uh, Gulf Arab states are just probably just as interested in Iran sanctions as Israel is. And somehow this has become a purely Israel issue well, um, in, in a lot of people's minds. Well, first of all, I mean, first of all, Iran sanctions are are somewhat significant, but Iran sanctions, from my perspective, are frankly a uh, a token or a placeholder. Look, I mean, we see pretty clearly that sanctions are not going to force the Iranians to abandon their nuclear weapons program. So. Uh, at a certain point, insofar as President Obama has said all options are on the table, I think we need to take that seriously. And I think that we also need to take seriously the fact that the president has walked away from this statement. I think once the president starts calling people who are pushing for more sanctions warmongers, as he uh, called various U.S. representatives and senators, and as he called various um, various actors in the pro-Israel community, warmongers, for pushing for an additional round of sanctions, that's a pretty clear yardstick for how far the president has walked away from the notion that all options are still on the table. The prospect that the president still believes military force is a... Uh, it's an option that he's willing to entertain, I think, is fanciful at present. And I think the different people who um, who argue on behalf of the president's uh, credibility are, are, are making, I believe, uh, are, are uh, hazarding their own credibility to make this argument. So I guess what you're what you're certainly saying is, you know, the president sets red lines and the like, and you know, with regard to no Syria, and nobody the believes right is serious about taking military action against Iran. Just as after the after his decision to sign on to the uh, chemical weapons initiative, the Russian chemical weapons initiative in September, when the president was determined said he was going to strike Bashar al-Assad uh, regime targets, when he walked away from that, there was an enormous issue. No one now believes that this is that the president has kept all options on the table with Iran. This is one of the things that we're seeing unfolding in Ukraine. The president is reap is is reaping in Ukraine the weakness that he sowed over Syria. This is the problem. No one there are very few people who actually believe that it's in the American interest now or ever to send special operations troops to liberate the Crimea or that we should conduct airstrikes on Putin's presidential resort palace in Sochi. The problem is that the president of the United States comes across as weak. And that started to happen, or that was that idea was burned into the imagination of the world, starting with Syria. It's an enormous issue. So again, when we talk about, when we talk about what's going to happen with Iran, we need to keep these things in mind, where this started and why people do not have faith, why American allies in the region do not have faith in the president right now. Do you think it's a question of the administration misunderstanding, not having good intelligence, or not having uh, not having a good sense of uh, being a good chess player? 
and the like, or it's just a ideological. Uh, uh, the president has laid out his vision of the Middle East fairly clearly now in a series of articles, one by a series of articles and interviews, the first by David Remnick, and most recently Jeffrey Goldberg in Bloomberg, which appeared yeah, this week. Appeared, this appeared Sunday. So I think it's pretty clear what the president wants to do. In advance of Netanyahu's put, uh, visit, so uh, certainly caused the stir. Right. The president wants to create what, he, um, what David Remnick called the geopolitical equilibrium. Ostensibly, he wants to balance um, long-time American allies like Saudi Arabia uh, off of long-time American adversaries, Islamic Republic of Iran. However, um, this is only part of it. He also wants to balance um, Israel against Iran. So the president has been, has been fairly clear about this in interviews. There's, no, there's really no official statement but he's outlined his vision of what he thinks the Middle East and what he thinks the Persian Gulf should look like. No, I don't think it's a misunderstanding of intelligence. I don't think it has to do with the, um, the president not um, uh, or mistakenly communicating or not understanding. He has a very clear vision of which way he wants to take things. Okay, so it's despite the facts on the ground they're, they're doing this. It's not the question of well, I, misunderstanding it. Well, I would it. say this. I would say that's true. But, again, that's not how the White House reads it. The White House reads it in terms of, no, it's because of the facts on the ground that we're deciding to do these different things. This is why we're pushing these different angles. You and I agree it's in spite of what's actually happening on the ground, but that's not how the White House sees it. Well, it's, it's amazing that the same day that they're pushing this type of agenda, well, Israel's missing the boat here on peace, there is... Uh, a boat, actually, that's carrying weapons to, uh, to uh, from Iran to Gaza and uh, missiles, long-range missiles. Well, I guess that maybe hundred mile missiles uh, that Israel intercepts. One hundred and twenty, one hundred twenty-five. Okay, capable of reaching pretty much all of Israel. So very, very dangerous missiles. What does the White House do with that type of information? Do they just bury it? Do they ignore it? Do they bury it in their heads? I mean, you, you've looked at this for a long time. So give us, give us a sense oh, of I, what I they do with ma- it. I think this makes no difference to the White House at all. I mean, we, see, I mean, <laughs> the Islamic Republic of Iran has been smuggling weapons into Hezbollah to Hezbollah in Lebanon for 30 years. The Islamic Republic of Iran is supporting the Assad regime in Syria. The Islamic Republic of Iran has been responsible for terrorism around the world for nearly four decades now. So the idea that the United States is going to make it, or the Obama administration rather, is going to make an about-face now and reconsider its joint plan of action, uh, the interim agreement with Iran over its nuclear weapons program, that's not going to happen. These guys have made a decision, and again, you and I may agree, it flies in the face of facts on the ground, but this is what they see. So the idea that the Iranians are shipping arms to um, Palestinian militants in Gaza or um, different Salafist jihadist fighters in Sinai makes no difference to the administration. They see it just as clearly as we do. They just have a different interpretation. This is Spin Class, and we're talking here with Lee Smith of the Weekly Standard, as well as Tablet Magazine. And Lee covers foreign policy, and particularly the Middle East, and has a really uh, keen observations with regard to Iran and Russia. Uh, tell us a little bit about Afghanistan and what's going on there. And I know it's almost an afterthought in this. In this, where we have all these other burning. Uh, issues, but you know we've been in Afghanistan for so long where the administration is trying to get out, and they can't even come to an agreement with Hamid Karzai as to you know how the United States is going to leave. Yeah, I mean it's it's um, look, I think it was a mistake for the president to have campaigned in 2008 to begin with on the notion that Afghanistan was the good war and Iraq was the bad war. But this is of course this was part of the president's political campaign and it had nothing to do with an actual strategic um, strategic vision of the um, of the broader Middle East or of American interests. So Afghanistan was never a part of that. Again, Afghanistan was just another way to beat up on the Bush administration, um, which was leaving anyway. But the president felt, uh, the current president felt that this was an important thing to do. So no, I think they've never been very clear on Afghanistan, just as they were uh, eager to get out of Iraq. And we see which way Iraq has gone now. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that Iraq was ever going to be perfect. The idea that now that Iraq, that Iraq is essentially um, in the, an Iranian asset, which is one of the things that we saw yesterday with the IDF commando raid on the 
on this uh, the close A, this ship that you were talking about before that was smuggling rockets, um, that was destined to smuggle rockets into Gaza and Sinai. I mean, one of the stops that the sh- that the that the ship made was um, in uh, Umm Qasr, a port in Iraq. So yeah, it's pretty clear right now which you know which way Iraq is gone. Uh, it looks like Afghanistan may be going the same way. Well, I, I guess. From that, I don't know what we learn exactly with regard to American foreign policy. Do we just not have an ability to get a foothold in that part of the world? Do we not have an ability to have the, the influence States that we're looking had, for? The United States has been the power in the Middle East, the great power in the Middle East, for half a century, at least half a century, even longer. If you look back at it to 1944, which is when FDR met with the then king and founder of Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud, on the Great Bitter Lake in Egypt. And the agreement was is that the United States was going to protect Saudi Arabia and the United, that Saudi Arabia was going to be an American client. And that would ensure American hegemony in the Middle East. The Americans would protect that oil from, um, I mean, for the most part, from the Soviet Union. This is, where, this is part of our legacy of the Cold War. Winning the Cold War... We won the Persian Gulf. This has been going on for over half a century. The President of the United States, he is entirely overturning and revising that order of the Middle East. Is that what the Saudis want? It has to do with an American ability to have a foothold in the region. It has to do with the particular way in which this President sees the Middle East and American interests. Yes, it's... So it's, Lee, is uh, that was transformational it, to say the least? So Lee, is that what the Saudis want? They just want status quo. They just want the American influence yes, to the continue. Saudis are status quo power. Everyone's a status quo power in the Middle East. But, Israel's a status quo power. The Arabs are a status quo power. There's one revolutionary regime in the region, and that's the Islamic Republic of Iran. So yes, they want to overturn things on their behalf in the region. The White House thinks that it can come to an accommodation with Iran and it can manage to balance the Iranians off of both the Saudis and the Israelis. I certainly don't see it like that. I think it's preposterous. But as I said before, this is the vision of the region that the president has outlined um, in his article, uh, in the article that David Remnick wrote about him in The New Yorker two months ago and in the interview that Jeffrey Goldberg did last week in Bloomberg. This is the vision of the region that he's outlined. It's entirely different from the way any other president of the United States has seen the Middle East in 60 years. Who knows? Maybe in 20 years we'll be looking back on this and say, Obama was a visionary. He was right. Everyone else was wrong. The mainstream of the American foreign policy establishment just had it dead wrong. Obama was a visionary. He was a genius. The only one who ever imagined it like this, but he was right. Maybe that's how we'll see it in 20 years. It's not tending that way now. Well, I I would agree with the fact that the trends right now. So you wrote an interesting piece this week with regard to the APAC conference and that I, I found very provocative uh, and intriguing. And I can say a lot of agreement. And I'll, I'll frame the question as this. Uh, last year, Joe Biden, you know, banged on the table and wagged his finger as he does when speaking to AIPAC and says, oh, Barack Obama doesn't bluff and with talking about Iran. And now we're one year later and everybody's kind of sitting around and said, well, actually, he was bluffing. And the pro-Israel community is kind of sitting there scratching their heads a little bit and saying, OK, now what? Uh, and you, you, you imply that AIPAC sacrifices its principles on the altar of bipartisanship. That's that's my characteristic of it. But uh uh, Explain to the really, audience why why you say that, and you know whether you know whether that APAC is kind of uh, diminished these days. Right. I mean, I, I don't think that they've sacrificed their principles on the altar of bipartisanship. Bipartisanship is one of their is one of their principles, which is a which is a sound and decent principle, especially insofar as excuse me, APAC needs to pass legislation, and that depends on consensus, which usually means reaching across the aisle. From left to right. So no, I don't think that's a, a bad principle, and I don't think they sacrifice principles at all. It just seems that there are different moments when, <coughs> excuse me, some principles are going to be difficult to adhere to, and I think that this is one of the things that um, APAC has run against most recently. I think again, in the way that we've been descri- or the way that I've been describing the president, that the president sees the Middle East differently than anyone else has seen it before. Yes, and he's going to lead Democrats on the Hill. And they're going to follow him. Um, so it's, it's it's an entirely revisionist re- re- view of the region. And 
I think that this is actually one of the things that APAC ran up against. It wasn't merely a, a clash between two of its important, two of its main principles, one of which is bipartisanship, the other is stopping the Iranian nuclear program. So these two things are both very important. One of the things that made these two, again, that made these two issues, two principles clash was the fact that the president does not see the world uh, as APAC does, nor as uh, the government of Israel, nor as many people in Washington see it. When um, Prime Minister Netanyahu was speaking at the APAC policy conference Tuesday morning, and when he said that he believes that what is needed to stop the Iranian nuclear program peacefully uh, are more sanctions, biting sanctions, and sanctions is what got the Iranians to the table. That's what will secure a better deal and ensure that the Iranians do not have a nuclear weapons program and that there won't be a shooting war that erupts. It's not how the administration sees it. The president fought sanctions to begin with. He's vetoed uh, or he's threatened to veto the most recent round or the latest round of sanctions. And even if that were to pass, it's up to the president to whether or not he wants to enforce them. That taken together with the fact that the president has collapsed the sanctions regime that already existed by providing the Iranians with economic relief, which has helped collapse, collapse the sanctions regime, it's clear that the president of the United States just doesn't see it the way that the mainstream of the American foreign policy establishment or the prime minister of Israel or, the, uh, or APAC uh, officials see it. So, I mean, so who, would have, but, who would have known well, the president of the United States would see it so differently from everyone else? I think that's one of the problems that APAC ran into. Right, but Lee, is is their job as a lobbying, uh, as as one of the premier lobbying organizations, to change the president's mind on this? And I think uh, you, there was a money line in your article of not bringing a knife to a gunfight. Is APAC? Well, that's, that's how the administration sees it. I mean, that, that's how the administration sees political fights like this, I'm, I, I, and my sense is that, look, I mean, the, uh, apparently we, uh, we understand from various sources inside the organization and outside and close to the organization that APAC officials put it very kindly and very gen- gently and diplomatically, and they said there was simply an honest policy disagreement here between us and the President of the United States. Well, that's not how the White House saw it, and we know that's not how the White House saw it, that it was a simple policy disagreement or an honest policy disagreement, because the President of the United States and administration officials started letting on that people who wanted more sanctions were warmongers. Um, So the notion that the administration was trafficking in anti-Semitic conceits and tropes, they did not see it the way APEC officials saw it. APEC officials, again, saw it in terms of an honest policy disagreement. That's not how the White House put it. We're talking to Lee Smith here on Spain Class, and Lee, you also said in the article that uh, Obama seems to be inspired or at least influenced by Walt and Mearsheimer, and I know that those two names, if people out there have forgotten about them, are the ones who have characterized the pernicious influence of the Israel lobby as being against American interests. So why do you feel that Obama is influenced by that, by those two? Um I mean, I, I think that Obama perceives the pro-Israel community and the pro-Israel lobby in the way that lots of policymakers have, that the pro-Israel lobby has um, often thwarts American policymakers from pursuing American interests. I think that this is what, I mean, I mean certainly this is what uh, Secretary James Baker thought, um, you know, the former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates was not a big fan of the pro-Israel community. Um, you know, I don't think it necessarily means that they have a problem with American Jews nor a problem with Israel. Um, they just think that the pro-Israel community, the pro-Israel lobby, is perhaps more powerful than it should be, and it prevents the United States often from pursuing its own interests. I think that one of the things that the president has in common with the Walton Mearsheimer vision of American policymaking is that what you need to do is you need to snap the spine of the pro-Israel community in order to advance American interest. And that is, I think, precisely what's, what we've seen going on in the last few months here. Yes, I think that Obama saw that his adversary, who would stop him from uh, making a deal with the Islamic Republic of Iran, over its nuclear weapons program, 
would be Israel uh, and the pro-Israel lobby here in the United States. Well, really, so what does that mean from your perspective going forward? How does the pro-Israel lobby operate? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> where do they go? Where's the space if the if the president is seeing them as uh, as formidable? As I'm sorry, not formidable opponents, but as you know, straight up opponents or political opponents. Kind of raw power politics. I mean, right. the president of the United States is a very powerful man, and usually gets his way. He loses sometimes, but not very often. He usually gets his way, and that's something that. So that has to be disconcerting for the leadership at APAC and others in the pro-Israel community. I, I, I would imagine so. But they don't, they don't they don't necessarily voice it so much, I guess, going back to that bipartisanship thing. Yeah, I think it's probably a difficult thing to uh, – I think it's dif- uh, probably a difficult thing to uh, – I'm not, I'm not, it's, it's not very useful to put that out in public. So. Right. Okay, well, Lee Smith uh, from the Weekly Standard and Tablet Magazine, thanks for joining us and giving, you your, giving us your insights on all things foreign policy. Thank you, uh, Lee, for joining us here on Spin Class. Thanks very much. I'd like to see you. And for our Knucklehead of the Week award goes to the staff of Eric Adams out there soliciting donations for charities that don't exist in order to help the borough. See you next week.